0: Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you not read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Oh God, we pray today that you would teach us. By Your Spirit, according to Your Word. God, You have given us this Word today so that we would rest. And we would rest in Christ. We would look to Christ as our payment for sin. Our righteousness that we need before You. The promise of eternal life and rest. It's only found in Him. And many of us come to this moment, and we are working, and we are anxious, and we are trying to do so many things and be so many things, and we're worn out. And yet, your gospel speaks rest. It brings rest. It gives rest. Rest in flesh and blood, whose name is Jesus. May we look to Him today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let me see that. Soon after our first child was born. Uh, Titus. Danae and I found ourselves in a season in life where she needed to finish up some responsibilities at a where she was working at a job, and I needed to finish up a degree. I was in Bible college and had not graduated yet. And so before she would eventually come home and, and stay with the kids full time, we, we found ourselves in this season where... Uh, she would go to work, and I would stay home with Titus during the day as a baby. And I would spend that time studying and writing papers and reading. And Titus would lay around and sleep because that's what that's what that's all babies do, right? Or or so I thought. Thought this is going to be easy. I'm going to put him to the side, and I'm going to read. I'm going to write. and I'm going to finish things up. I still remember. We had him on a schedule and I still remember the times during the day when I would put him down to sleep and he was supposed to sleep an hour and a half at nine, twelve and three. And I had it all figured out. I'm going to have four and a half hours to study while Danae is at work and it's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. I'm going to get this done. She would get home at six and then I would go to the church where I was serving and, and work in the evenings there. I mean, how hard could this be? This is the perfect time to get all of this done. Well, the reality is it was very hard. It was very difficult. And it just so happened that Titus was our worst baby. Like the worst. He screamed and he cried constantly. And he did not like sleeping. He did not like resting. Never wanted to do that. He was hyper and crazy and when I would lay him down to sleep, he, he wouldn't just fight it or cry. I mean, he would howl and he would screech and squill and scream. It was the worst thing in the world to, to lay him down. And so then, this was before earbuds or before I could afford noise-canceling uh, headphones. I would put him in his crib and then I would go into another room and wrap things around my head. And try my best not to hear him screaming and screeching in the other room as I read and as I wrote papers and studied and did those things. And that only lasted for a while because I, I was leaving the house one day and a neighbor saw me and she was like, is the baby OK? Like, and, and I could see in her eyes she's thinking, what are you doing to that child during the day? He's screaming constantly. And I couldn't understand why he was so fussy, why he hated to sleep. I mean, that would be the most glorious thing in the world, just to lay around and sleep. And then I got to where I would put him in his car seat and and I would drive around Birmingham, Alabama until he fell asleep. And then I would find a parking lot where I would go and I would read in, in my car while he slept in the back. That's the only way I could get him to go to sleep. Now, some of you young moms, when, when I talk to you and try to encourage you, you look at me sometimes, you're like, you just don't know. what No, I know. I know. I experienced it for several months in my life trying to get this little baby to go to sleep and try to get things done. And, and I would come up with all these creative ways to do it. But I, I could not understand why this fussy, irritated little human whose body is craving sleep, it wants sleep, it's longing for sleep. And yet he despised it and fought it so vehemently and wouldn't have anything to do with it. And yet it's a window into our souls, right? Where the thing that we long for, the thing that we want is rest. We want peace. Our lives long for it. And yet it's the very thing because of our sin nature that we fight against. And Jesus explains that to us uh, in this section of Scripture that we're going to look at today. These two episodes with the Pharisees. That the kingdom comes in and the kingdom does all the work. And the kingdom provides rest for our soul from sin and death. The things that we are fighting against. The things that cause turmoil in our life. The kingdom comes in to give us rest. And yet we fight against it with our own self-righteousness. We kick and we scream against it. And to teach us that, he points to the Pharisees and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees used the very symbol of rest, the Sabbath day of rest. They used it as a weapon to fight against rest that Jesus was bringing. The section we're going to look at today, it's two episodes, probably happened on two different Sabbaths with Jesus and the Pharisees. The word Sabbath, it means to cease. It means to stop working. It means to rest. And God established a Sabbath pattern when He created the world. God created for six days. He worked for six days. And here's the reality In six days, God got everything that He needed done, done. It was done. But then what did He do? He added another day. And He added that day for the purpose of resting. Now God Himself didn't rest. He didn't, he didn't stop uh, doing anything. And what I mean is he didn't, he, he didn't just take a nap. He didn't go to sleep. No, he, he sat back and admired His work. He reflected on what was before Him. Even though he was done with his work, he rested in admiring what was before him. And then he commands his people in Exodus that they are to take this seventh day, which would have been Saturday, and rest. He commands this day of rest to stop working. And the people of God were to rest to be reminded of their humanness. You have to stop and rest. You work and you work and you work, but you're finite. You are a creature and you can't keep working. You have to stop to remind yourself you're not God. And this is why they worshiped on the seventh day. They stopped from their work to worship God, to be reminded that they have a creator who has made them his people. And they were reminded of his promises in worship. Which means they were to stop work and trust God. That's what the Sabbath was about. Can you imagine leaving your fields going, Man, I just didn't get everything I wanted accomplished today, on Friday? But tomorrow's the Sabbath. We don't work on the Sabbath. And walking away from things that you thought you needed, which you thought you provided for yourself, but you had to stop and you had to remember God's going to take care of the cows. God's going to take care of the fields. We stop and we trust Him because He's the one that is providing for us. And on the Sabbath, all Jewish theology and practice came together in worship. It was their day. It was the symbol of who they were. God was working. God was providing. And we stop and we celebrate His presence. And we stop and we remember that. Now we apply that same principle to the Lord's Day, Sunday. The day Jesus was raised from the dead and the work is finished and on the Lord's Day we stop and we rest in the Gospel. We stop the normal things that we do to communicate, I have to stop working and trust God in the Gospel. I have to stop trusting and worship and celebrate the fact that God is always working for me and He has worked for me in Christ and the Gospel and the cross raising Him from the dead. Well, the Pharisees... They were the religious separatists of the day. Now, the Pharisees, we often think they're just these vile humans in the stories of the gospel. But they were the most religious of the religious. And they thought so much of the law of God that they created their own laws to make sure you were obeying the law of God. They did what was described as hedging around the law. And if you obeyed their hedge of laws, you would not violate the law. But the problem is they came up with so many laws and they came up with so many traditions and they came up with so many codes that hedged around the law, you didn't see the law. All you saw was their tradition. All you saw was their codes. And that, that became the law of the day, specifically with the Sabbath. There's one book, it's about 25 chapters of codes that the Pharisees took and applied just to the Sabbath day. There have been teachers who have spent years studying just one chapter of this book with the laws of the Sabbath. They had it down to how many steps you could take on Saturday on the Sabbath. Around 3,000. There were no Fitbits. You just had to count them. Or you had to measure and mark off. This is how far you can go and no further. And so often what they would do is on Friday, they would prepare a meal and they would take it 3,000 steps away. And then if they wanted to go to further than 3,000 steps, they would stop. They would eat this meal, consider that rest, and then take 3,000 more steps. They had it down to... The exact weight you could lift of anything on the Sabbath. And it was the weight of a dry fig. They had rules for how you prepared food. They didn't believe your food, the consistency of your food could change, but so much on the Sabbath. They had it down to how many bites you could chew on the Sabbath. And their presence on the Sabbath was overwhelming. This is when they came out to play. They were police of the day. They walked around to make sure no one was disobeying their rules and everyone complied. Even the Sadducees who hated the Pharisees complied to their rules. How are we going to argue with these guys? Everyone but Jesus. Verse 23, on one Sabbath, he was going to the grain fields with his disciples and at this point, Jesus has made a trek to Jerusalem. He's taught there. He's performed his ministry there. And now he's back at Galilee around the Galilean Sea. And he's walking with his disciples. And it's the Sabbath. And they're walking around grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now we think, oh, they're, they're stealing they're thieves. Well, no, this was allowed in the law. You couldn't reap your neighbor's field. You couldn't go out and harvest his whole field, but you could take grain from your neighbor's field and you could rub it and you could take the grain and collect from someone's field. This is a way that Israel took care. This is how they loved their neighbor. This is how they loved strangers as they allowed this. And they're not reaping. They're just plucking heads of grain. But notice the disciples or the Pharisees in verse 24, they were saying to him, look now, they're there watching what's going on. And here is the gotcha. And and it's it would have been common for the Pharisees to just follow Jesus around his disciples around and wait for them to do something wrong. They're waiting to accuse him. And so on this day, they've marked off their steps on the Sabbath. We can go that far. You go that far and you watch Jesus. I'll go this far and you watch Jesus. And they're policing Jesus and his disciples. And notice what they say. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the reality is they're not really breaking a command. They're not reaping, which is what was forbidden by the law. They're just picking grain, but they're being nitpicked by these Pharisees, self-righteous. Notice Jesus' response in verse 25. He said to them, Have you never read David? Now that is an insult. These are Bible teachers. This would be like saying to the pastor, the theologian, Do you not know what the Bible says? Do you not know what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? My, My disciples are hungry. We're in need. He and those who are with him. Now, this is the time we, we looked at this in first Samuel, where David is fleeing Saul in battle. Him and his men, they become hungry. In verse 26, he entered the house of God, the tabernacle in the time of Abathar. Now, this is the son of Ahimelech, which marked David's time as, as king. Stories of David. The high priest. And they ate the bread of the presence. Now, this was bread in the presence of God that only the priest, as he says, it is only lawful for the priest to eat. David gives it to his men. The bread that symbolized our fellowship with God, that God accepts us. The priest would, would eat this bread as a symbol of fellowship with God. And David is giving it to his men who are in need. Have you not read that story? Do you, not, do you not know of that story? Well, how in the world could David do this? Well, Jesus would say David was the anointed king of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And he possessed a greater authority than even the priest, even the temple, even the bread in that moment. And he uses his authority as king to feed his men. And if David can feed his men from the house of God... Jesus would say, I am the king who is present with an even greater authority and I can feed my men on the Sabbath. David used the bread of the presence for his benefit. I will use the Sabbath for my benefit. Verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Do you not understand? Just like the bread in the temple, the Sabbath was made to provide for us. It was God's goodness to us. Not man for the Sabbath. And this is what you're doing. Something God has given that is good and that is right to take care of you. You have taken that thing and you have served that thing. God's blessing to you. You've become a slave to it. Verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God has given the Sabbath as a good thing, but you've become a slave to it. Well, here's the deal. I am Lord of the Sabbath and you shouldn't be serving the Sabbath. You should be serving me. There is a king who is present with greater authority than even David. And you're missing it because you're a slave to the day. I stand as creator of the day. Can you imagine telling the one Jesus who created the day, who has ordered the day, what he should be doing on the day? And the point is, you shouldn't be serving the day. You should be serving me. And I've given the day to provide goodness for you. This is the most direct assault on the Pharisees that Jesus has given or will give. And Mark gets right to it. In the chapter 2, verse 3. Let's get to this conflict. These are his arch enemies. And he has humiliated them. He will humiliate them. He will call them whitewashed tombs which means you take your coffins and you make them pretty and you put your flowers on it and they look nice on the outside and people just ooh and awe over your coffins. Well, what's inside a coffin? A dead man. Bones that are decaying. And that's who you are. You look pretty on the outside with your robes and your laws and your codes and the things you do on the Sabbath, but you're dying on the inside. You're like a multi-million dollar house and it's pristine and everybody thinks it's beautiful, but it's being eaten by termites. Being eaten by your self-righteousness. Jesus would claim to be God. He would say, the Father and I are one. And the Pharisees would seethe. They would gnash their teeth. This is blasphemy. But Jesus gets to the point here and He says, the day that you are slaving for. The symbol. What is your identity here? I am Lord even over that day. People would stand around and say, oh, He went there. We've been waiting for that moment. Lord of the Sabbath? Really? This gets at the heart of who they are. This is the symbol of their identity. This is like dancing on the other team's logo. He's throwing it in their face. He's getting to their hearts. He says there's something greater than the law, the temple, the Sabbath that is present. And when the giver of the law, the temple, the Sabbath is present, you don't keep slaving after those things. You serve the Lord of those things. And the day that was to make them stop and say, we are not God, was causing them to miss God. Think about that. The symbol of their identity became a tool for their idolatry. The Sabbath. And I wonder as a Christian, is the symbols of your identity as a Christian, have they become tools for self-idolatry? The the things that, that you would say, I'm a Christian, so I do these things. They are symbols of my identity. I gather with my church family. I serve my church family. I read my Bible. I pray. I share the gospel. I go on mission trips. I do all of these things. This is who I am as a Christian. But are those things tools for your idolatry? How do you know? Or are you doing those things to serve those things or yourself or the Lord of those things who is Jesus? You see, the church is to remind us we're not Lord. We look around here on a Sunday morning and we sing these songs and we gather here to be reminded we're not Jesus. We're not the Savior. The Savior says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Look around at what I'm building. Be mindful of what I'm building around the world. And yet we will gather here and build for ourselves a resume. We will gather here and build for ourselves a status. One of the things that goes on in Christian Christian's lives so often I see it is that they go to work and they go to school and even in their home and their job, they're trying so hard for status and it's not what they thought it would be and they're not who they thought they would be. And so they take that craving for status and a name and they show up at church. And so I can't do it there, so I will do it at church. And they begin to serve more than anybody else. And they begin to do so many more things than anybody else does. So they build, they they work themselves up the spiritual ladder and they're at the top and they get what they want. But it's self-worship. It's not about Jesus. And a lot of times we take the Word of God, which is to definitely remind us, I'm not God. God has spoken in His Word, and I must surrender to Him. He is the creator of all things, and he is, He's got this amazing story of how He fulfills His promises. And this is all about God. And we will take the Bible and we'll take things out of the Bible, little tips and applications that we can accomplish and that we can do ourselves, and it makes us feel better. And we can say, The Bible proves that I'm right, the Bible proves that I'm more moral. The Bible proves that that I have better values than the rest of the world. At least I'm not like those people. And before long, we've used the Bible as a tool for self-idolatry. We can do this with missions. Missions is meant to display the glory of God and the joy of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We want God to be glorified, so we want all peoples to praise Him. And I will suffer and I will sacrifice for the gospel to get to the ends of the earth. But so often, it's not about God's glory. It's so that people to the ends of the earth will see my glory. Look how much I sacrifice. Look how much I do for Jesus. Look how much I'm willing to give up. Look how radical I am. When these things are used to serve ourselves, we will naturally begin to enslave others with them. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. The Sabbaths, they were slaves to the Sabbath. They began to lord over the Sabbath. As they lorded over the Sabbath, they began to enslave others to the Sabbath. And I wonder if there are things in your life where you're doing that to others. With things that are good and things that are right and things that are holy and yet, they're used to serve yourself so you begin to enslave others with them like cynical hall monitors at church. Where were you? You're going to be a part of this. You're going to do this. Did you fast on Friday? Did you get really, really hungry? Or did you just skip a meal? Or did you do the... And you begin to enslave others with the idols of self. How do you break against that? Well, you remember who is Lord of the church. And it's Jesus. And if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, He's Lord of the Church, and He's Lord of Iwana. and He's Lord of coffee we serve, and He's Lord of front line. And so every little sugar packet that I put in the coffee back there is for the glory of Christ. Not so people would say, "I want you to make my coffee on Sunday." You are a glorious coffee maker. No, it's it's about Jesus, and you have to fight. But all of these things are to remind us we're not Jesus. Think about that. And the things that are to remind us we're not Jesus, we often use to be Jesus. And yet we stop and say, no, he is Lord. Another story in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he went into the synagogue. Now remember, this is the place where the religious leaders taught. They interpret the Scripture. They put forth their traditions. People would gather around and talk about the traditions. They would read the Scripture together. And all the religious folks were there. And yet there's a man with a withered hand. It means his hand was dead. It had atrophied. Many believe that this was his right hand because most people were right-handed and they believe he was a stonemason. And so he'd worked his whole life. It's a picture of someone who has worked their hand to death. And they watched Jesus. Now the word for watch, it's just this scrutiny. They're looking in like wild animals Ready to trap him. There's great scrutiny. I'll never forget the the Sunday where we were uh, when we had had just do we're just doing virtual services here, and we we gathered here. We we're just getting used to how how this thing worked, and this place was empty. And we're up here, and we're really trying to to do the right thing. I'll never forget opening up a Facebook message and and seeing little twits who were critiquing the distance between our band up here. And they were saying, I don't think those people are six foot apart and I saw them talking to each other without masks. And I remember opening that up and going, Oh my word. At first I was like, Wow, we need to spread out. And then I was thinking, No, let's get closer together. Let's invite more people up on the stage. Let's pack." Jesus kind of does the same thing here. So I was being Christ-like. But they're watching with great scrutiny to see what He will do. Will He heal this man on the Sabbath? And notice it, so they would accuse Him of breaking the Sabbath. And this is exactly what Jesus does. If you're here to scrutinize Me, if you're here to accuse Me, well, I'm going to give you a great opportunity. Verse 3, He said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And again, Mark emphasizes these moments with Jesus, follow me. Where it's just this abrupt moment. And and men leave their fishing nets and they leave their family and they do what Jesus says. The same thing here. And you can imagine this man who attended the synagogue that day and he probably had his hand hidden. It, was, it, it, it would have been embarrassing for him. Probably lost, lost his livelihood because of it. Probably was seen as... Someone who's not very useful, couldn't do much on the Sabbath, couldn't serve much on the Sabbath. All he had was his other hand. And Jesus says, come here. And standing before him and before the Pharisees, he looks at them and says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And he puts before them their own sins. What do you want done today? Do you want to do good or do you want to do harm? Because I think you're here to do harm. I actually think you're here to kill. What, what is it? And he puts before them the purpose of the Sabbath, which is to do good. It's to serve men. And he says, is it lawful? And again, this would have been hilarious. You know the law. You have the law. Is it good? He gets to the heart. Of what's going on. He gets to their heart, but notice they were silent. And again, they're cowards. Now, they could have, they could have debated with Jesus. They actually had interpretations of the law that said, well, you can, you can take care of someone on the Sabbath if they're going to die immediately. So if they're, if they're gushing out with blood, you can stop it on the Sabbath. And they could have stood up and debated with Jesus if they wanted to, but they're cowards. They don't care about the law. At this point, they just hate Jesus and they want to kill him, which is what Jesus is unveiling. They want to kill. They don't want to save. Verse five, and he looked at them with anger. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where. Jesus, it is it is said that Jesus is angry. There are other places where it's described. He's in the temple. He's turning over tables with a whip. But here it says, no, he's angry. He's full of indignation. He's full of wrath in this moment. But then immediately in our English Bibles, the next word, he looks at them, makes eye contact with them, and he's can you could you imagine the stare of the Savior in anger? What would that be like for you? It would be terrifying for those who realize who he is. It's obvious they don't. And then the next word is. Grieved. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. And these two emotions go together to describe his brokenness. Their religious idolatry has caused him to seethe with a broken heart. Isn't it interesting that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners? But he is angry and broken. Seething in the presence of religious idolaters. What makes Jesus mad what invokes jesus's stare of fiery anger for you to think you got it all together to be in a religious idolater self-righteousness self-righteousness and we know what this is like like there have been people in your life who you you loathe what they're doing and you're Why would you do that? Why would you act that way? Why would you be so selfish? And it angers you and it frustrates you. And at the same time, you are broken for them because you know it's bad for them. You know, it's harmful for them. And Jesus fills that emotion. He's not a robot. He fills their callousness. He fills their lack of mercy. He fills their lack of compassion. Jesus is standing there and this man has a withered hand and you are so self-righteous. So self-righteous. All you can think about is killing me. And yet I'm doing good. That's what invokes his anger. That's what invokes his wrath. And then he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored again. The immediateness, immediateness of the Savior. Immediately restored. It, it's as if he pulls it out and it never, his hand was never dead. Fully restored. And he did it. And we wonder, why did Jesus, why did you do that? You could have waited till tomorrow. You're just trying to pick a fight. But he's gone from, think about the miracles in Mark where he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Only tell the priest. And now he's like, no, let's just do this. I'm going to put you on blast today. (laughs) We're going to get to how hard your heart really is. You don't want me to heal the blind. You don't want me to heal the sick. You don't want me to heal the lame. You don't want to do good on the Sabbath. You're ready to kill somebody. Mark gets right to this moment. In verse 6, the Pharisees went out and in Luke, Luke, it's they stomped out like little mad kids. Full of rage. They've lost their mind. They've gone red. They're done. Angry. Furious. Notice what they do immediately. They create a task force with the Herodians against how to destroy him. They begin to meet. They begin to have committee meetings and their whole goal is to kill, literally obliterate Jesus. And notice who they're partners with, the Herodians. Now, this was not a religious class. This was a political party. These are Jews that didn't care anything about religion. They cared more about politics. And so they followed Herod the Great. They were Hellenists. They were Romanized. They were influenced by Greek culture. And because of that, the Pharisees hated them. The Pharisees could not stand these people. But they hate Jesus so much, they're willing to partner with this political party. Imagine that in our context. Where church folks... They align with Republicans or Democrats, however you see that, to oust somebody. And we would go, what? Religion and politics, that shouldn't be happening. Y'all don't even agree on the same things. These things that you are directly opposed. Same thing going on here. And they want to destroy him. The word is to utterly obliterate raise to the ground so nothing is left of Jesus. And they answered the question when Jesus says, is it better to save a life or to kill? There's your answer. And what life do they want to kill Jesus? And they become opposed to the very thing they're championing. Rest in Jesus. And they champion a day of rest and they're willing to kill rest in flesh and blood. And the reality is only Jesus had the authority to keep working on the Sabbath. As they followed him around and they were trying to accuse him, you're working, you're working, you're restoring people, you're healing the blind, you're casting out demons, you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. Jesus could turn around and say to them, no, 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 I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I can keep working on the Sabbath. You can't keep working on the Sabbath. But you're obviously working really hard following me around. I'm the only one who has the right to keep working on the Sabbath." And that's what infuriated them. And what broke Jesus' heart is he doesn't see what he is displaying before them. They don't see it. As he, as he healed the blind on the Sabbath, they couldn't see that they were the blind. You think you're seeing something in your law and your code, and you think you're seeing something when you look in the mirror, some sort of righteousness. Oh, you don't see righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees in flesh and blood. You don't see it. And it broke his heart as he caused the lame to, to walk on the Sabbath. They did not see their lameness. They didn't see that they couldn't walk. They're walking around. They're taking their steps Sabbath after Sabbath. This is how far we can go. But no, you've broken your legs. You don't see it. And as he, as he healed this man of this withered dead hand, think about all of the things that they were doing with their hands on the Sabbath. They were ringing their bells. Look at all we do on the Sabbath. Look at how much we give on the Sabbath. And as they put money in the offering plate with their hands, Jesus is saying, your hand is dead. It's dead. It's meaningless. It's useless. And you need to look to Me for restoration and healing in their self-righteousness, the very thing that they championed they were rejecting in the Sabbath. They used the very day that said they needed rest to deny rest. And I wonder if that's what's going on with you. Are you attempting today to save yourself with a Gospel that says you can't save yourself? Where you take this thing that says you can't earn it And you're taking it with all the things you do with it and for it and trying to earn it. You see see how easy that is to do. And most often, no one else around you can see that going on but you. But are you blinded by self-righteousness? With lame legs, you're going on mission trips, you're preaching sermons, you're serving in the student ministry. And you're acting like you're earning a heaven while you tell other people they can't earn heaven. Do you see how that can happen in self-righteousness? With dead man's hands, you put money in the offering plate to send the gospel around the world. There are people right now in pagan religions and they are offering up prayers and incense before idols. Just out in the middle of nowhere. It's going nowhere. No one's going to hear their prayers. No one's going to answer their prayers. And yet they think by offering prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer, someone is going to hear and they're trying to earn something before a pagan God. And you're sending money to tell them they can't earn it. And while you do, you think you are earning it. That's just as pagan as what's going on there. Do you get it? It's pagan idolatry. And the idol is the person you see in the very mirror. You can teach Bible studies on the imputed righteousness of Christ. You know what we mean by that? It's one of the most important theological concepts you can talk about. And it's the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, it's not just that Jesus died for your sin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He always obeyed. And when you believe in Him, His righteous life is credited to you as if you always obeyed and you never sinned. And you can unpack that in amazing ways. And people will be in awe of that. But you, in unpacking that, can believe you're earning the righteousness that you're saying you cannot earn. You see how scary that can be and how self-righteousness can creep in into our lives, even to those of us who say we believe the Gospel. With blind man's eyes, we can gather here and sing nothing but the blood. But we can think by singing nothing but the blood, we're adding to the blood. And so what do you do? I would say if that's you, you're probably a fussy, irritated little baby who needs to lay down and rest. And I got good news for you. Jesus kept working on the Sabbath until one Friday. Until one Friday evening and he stopped working and he said it's finished. And he died on the cross. As we've just heard song his body was placed in the ground. And there was one Sabbath where the Pharisees who were following him around they they couldn't say oh you're being a sabbath breaker today. You're working on the Sabbath. No, he was resting on the Sabbath. He was dead. Because he paid the penalty for your sin. As a Sabbath breaker, he was killed by those who longed for a Sabbath and championed a Sabbath. He was crucified and tortured. They got their way, they answered the question, they killed him, wiped him off the face of the earth to rest in the ground for three days. Jesus rested in your place for your sin. but The reality is God didn't stop working. God raised him from the dead. He's at the right hand of God. And he calls you today to rest in him. You see, what I've noticed over the years is a lot of people, they get the points in ministry and they, they do get burned out. And I want to be very careful. When I, there, there are things that we're involved in and we do them and we do them and we, we begin to... We get them wear down. And it's good to switch ministries. It's good to do other things in the context of the church when you, when you get, quote, burned out and you don't feel fresh doing those things. That, that's a good thing to do. But so often I talk to people who get burned out and they've forgotten why in the world they're doing it. They're just showing up. They're going through the motions and they forgot there is a Lord of the church. There's a Lord of this thing that I'm doing. And they've got to remember why they're doing it. It's not to stop doing the good thing. It's not to stop serving. It's to stop serving yourself through the good thing. You never stop serving Jesus. No, we, we stop serving ourselves as we serve Jesus. And one of the more tragic things that I've seen so often in the life of the church is we come and we adapt to a culture and we start doing good things for Jesus and we, we just take on the appearance that, that of the things that we do. I can't tell you the times where I've sat down with Christians who are the most active in the church and I looked them in the eyes and they say, I'm not a Christian. I've been doing Christian things to try to earn my salvation. That's what I've been doing. They, They thought by being a part of the church, they would find rest. And if I do this, I'll find rest. And if I sing this song, I'll find rest. And if I say these things, I'll find rest. And it's not working, but they keep doing more and more and more and more and more and more. And that breaks Jesus' heart. And so we don't want to stop serving Jesus. We want to stop serving ourselves and enjoy Jesus. And so we stop kicking and screaming. And we lay down in the cross. We say, only you could pay for my sins. Nothing. I can't add to that, Jesus. Your death in my place, judgment, wrath of God poured out upon you. I can't do that. You rest in His righteousness, His perfect life. I can't add to your righteousness. You've been raised from the dead and you're working on my behalf now and I trust you in everything that I do from this moment on. It's not to obtain victory. It is to sing in the victory. Stop kicking and screaming against the Savior who rested in your place. Rest in Him today.